Hi, I'm Mark Brody, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, the outgoing conductor of the Phoenix Symphony reflects on his decade leading the orchestra. And if you thought the art of writing in cursive is dead, think again. But first, a state Senate committee yesterday voted to revise or consolidate the Arizona Commerce Authority. The agency has come under criticism recently over some of the ways it looks to attract businesses to the state. Attorney General Chris Mays earlier this week said events known as CEO forums are unconstitutional. An Auditor General report from last fall found the agency could not, firm, could not confirm that incentives it gave out to companies led to investment in Arizona or jobs for state residents. With me now to talk about about what the future of the Arizona Commerce Authority may look like is Cameron Sanchez from KJZZ's politics desk. She was following the hearing yesterday that led to the decision to revise or consolidate the agency. Good morning, Cameron. Good morning. So what exactly happened yesterday? What was this committee and and what was the discussion like? Well, it was a tense discussion because the leader of the community, Senator Jake Hoffman, um, very much criticized the governor for allowing the Commerce Authority to operate in a way that he says is you know, not good enough. Um, Hobbs said in her state of the state speech at the beginning of this legislative session that the Arizona Commerce Authority absolutely needs to be continued. It's obviously a priority for her. And following that, um, Senator Hoffman dropped a bill to dissolve the agency. Um, So he was chairing this committee yesterday where they made a recommendation to revise or consolidate it. Now, it's not 100% clear what that means yet that would have to be another discussion but it's it's as opposed to a continuation so they did not vote to continue the agency like normal so it would in- indicate that at least some this committee w- would support some kind of changes even if we don't know exactly what those look like yes so as you say Hoffman has been critical of this agency he as you mentioned he he has a bill to basically just do away with it but it's worth pointing out that this agency has been around for a while and Bol- and Governor Brewer uh started it Governor Doug Ducey was very involved in it and and credited it was credited with a lot of its success so why mm-hmm. is he going after I guess maybe other than for the obvious political reasons like does he really think that everything going on is Governor Hobbs's fault that's entirely possible. He's not a huge fan of the governor. Uh, he did cite the auditor's report from September, which said, you know, the ACA spent like $2 million on these CEO forums just in one year alone during the Super Bowl. And what that means basically is that the Commerce Authority was paying for the lodging and entertainment and meals of influential CEOs from various companies trying to entice them to come to Arizona to do business here. Um, But then the report said, you know, there wasn't enough documentation to show that businesses were actually meeting the requirements for the incentives that we were offering them. And the CEO of the authority yesterday in the committee said, well, you know, we were reviewing everything that we needed to. We just didn't have the documentation in order, but we still were doing what we were supposed to do. Is that the same, like, is that kind of along the same lines as what uh, Attorney General Chris Mays said earlier this week when she pointed out, or in her opinion, that these CEO forums violate the gift clause of the state constitution? It's similar. So 
uh, Attorney General May's report follows from this audit report, and it's it's a legal opinion. Um, it's not legally binding. It's just you know her own opinion. But it says, yes, this is in violation of the state constitution because it's using state dollars to pay for these things, and you know that's that's illegal. And Hoffman agreed with Mays, but the governor's spokesperson, Christian Slater, told me yesterday that the governor does not agree with the attorney general's opinion. How so? We're not sure yet. Um, I'm going to go ask her about it in about 40 minutes. But I think, you know, the governor is absolutely wanting to stand by the Commerce Authority and, you know, citing its successes for Arizona's economy and how we've had so much job growth and we've incentivized businesses to come here over the last few years. And she wants to credit the Commerce Authority for a lot of that. Um, the business community stands behind the Commerce Authority, it would seem. They sent a letter signed on by, by several businesses, more than 100, saying that it's important, that it needs to stay. So maybe there's an appetite to continue it, but just dial it down or put guardrails on it. Yeah, so, I mean, what what are some of the possible outcomes here? I mean, obviously, this committee is in favor of changes to the Commerce Authority. Do you get the sense that there is that appetite sort of in the legislature more broadly also? I believe the Senate president has said something along those lines, but the Democrats um, don't seem to be in favor of changing the authority in a super stringent way. I mean, the Democrats on the panel voted against this recommendation, and one of the Republicans did also, but it still passed. So I think this could be a party line issue. And so in terms of of possible outcomes here, I mean, it seems like the two extremes are it continues as is or it goes away entirely. But there are also like ha- have there been discussions about what changes could be, even if we don't know what specifically, you know, folks like Jake Hoffman and the others who voted in favor of this yesterday envision? Not yet. Um, something along the lines of accountability. Hobbs issued a statement saying that, you know, she wouldn't be opposed necessarily to guardrails. And it's good to have guardrails on programs like the private school voucher program, which was a dig at Republicans because they love the private school voucher program. And this has been a, you know, a sticking point for them. But anyways, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I mean, I guess so like some, some kind of, of guardrails in terms of maybe better documentation or limits on the amount of, of funding or, or something like that. I think maybe all of the above and probably more frequent audits if they do continue. Okay. That is Cameron Sanchez from KJZZ's Politics Desk. Cameron, thanks as always. Thank you. The Arizona Department of Child Safety says it will no longer investigate reports of newborns who test positive for marijuana as long as their parent has a medical marijuana card. The move came after an appeals court ruled in favor of a mother who used medical marijuana during pregnancy to curb severe nausea and vomiting. The decision said that kind of cannabis use is protected under Arizona's medical marijuana law because it's under a doctor's advice. So what does marijuana use do to a fetus and how often do doctors in the Valley see this kind of use during pregnancy? For more on all of that, I spoke with Dr. Krista Labruzzo, a doctor specializing in addiction medicine at Banner Health. You know, this has been something that I feel like has been very ongoing and something we've been we've been studying. And it's changed over time, too, because as you see, you know, 
marijuana used to be mostly in leaf form. It used to be mostly smoked. And now we kind of have legalization where we have tons of different forms of marijuana or cannabis. Mm -hmm. And the biggest part that comes into play with that is the component of THC or tetrahydrocannabinol, which is that kind of active component. So we see much higher potency now. And so the studies we had from the 80s don't necessarily correlate with the potency that we're seeing right now. So there are a couple studies that kind of look at, okay, any female with marijuana use during pregnancy, chronic, what do we see that happens with fetus and then later on with newborn and, and childhood and adolescence? Yeah. What we do see is we like have this natural endocannabinoid system in our body is what it's called. So we naturally have a system that that is very similar to THC. And so we get concerned when we have that natural system what happens when we give exogenous THC and mm. what does that look like? Because not only do, is it a part of our immune system, it's a part of implantation, um, it's a part of pregnancy, it's a part of fetal development. So what we see in, in the couple of studies we do have from, you know, roughly the, the 2000s, we see that risks to baby in general, low birth weight, they may have NICU stays, um, they may be more stimulated, meaning more reactive to light and just, you know, a little bit more fussy just because of a withdrawal-like state. Hmm. We also see that young kiddos, even at a young age, will have decreased verbal skills um, and that adolescents are more likely to develop ADHD or issues with executive function and problems with substance use. Hmm. So there are some things that we're seeing, but again, there's many confounders, meaning some of these mothers used other substances. Maybe there's low socioeconomic status, which is hard to get into programs and things like that. So there are other confounders, but there's definitely concern. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I have been pregnant and I know that like mostly what happens is you have lots of things that have not been studied in pregnancy. And so they'll say, totally. we don't really know, so don't do it or don't use exactly. it. Right? <laughs> don't take that medicine because we don't really know. It sounds like this sort of falls in that category. Why is it so difficult to have studied this? It's difficult because if you think about it, we can't do a randomized controlled trial. If there is risk that we're aware of, yeah. which we look at these longitudinal studies, it's unethical to be like, to tell someone, okay, mm. you're going to smoke marijuana, you're not, and have that potential of having um, these issues with, with the fetus or with the newborn. And so we have to look longitudinally. And a lot of times it's retrospective, meaning, you know, we're asking moms to look back in pregnancy tell us how much they were using or smoking, were they using anything else? And sometimes, you know, looking back, we're, we're just not as confident and, or, you know, it's just not correct. You don't remember everything. Yeah. And so it becomes a little, little difficult to, to kind of look at those fine details. Yeah. So how do we know how common it is that a pregnant person will be prescribed even something like medical marijuana for, you know, to treat something like morning sickness? I, I know that exists, right? Yeah, it, it does. And, you know, here in the Valley, I would say it's very uncommon. I have mm -hmm. not seen it, um, any, any prescriber. And that's only because we do have medications for morning sickness that are safer, that we know are safer. Mm -hmm. So it would be very rare. And we also just don't have good data that says, hey, does this actually help? What's the risk versus benefit here for people? I will say anecdotally, there are studies that say pregnant women say marijuana use does help their morning sickness, but we just don't have great data that kind of shows that, that objective data, whether we do have less vomiting, we do have less hyperemesis, things like that. And yeah. since we do have 
some safe medications, those are those are first line, definitely. Yeah. So what do you see most often when it comes to infants who are born with drugs in their system? Is it often marijuana or is it often, you know, marijuana and something else? I would say it's often marijuana and something else. And you'll see, you know, we have patients that use cannabis or use nicotine. Um, they're more likely to use other substances as well. So I would say most of the time it's marijuana, um, nicotine, especially as you know we're in this sort of we've been in an opioid em- epidemic for quite a while. I see a lot of fentanyl as well, and babies undergoing neonatal abstinence syndrome, and so them having a withdrawal from that, um, which can complicate, you know other withdrawals from other substances. Hmm. So what does that look like in an infant when they are, you know, withdrawing from drugs? I think that's something you you don't normally associate with an infant, right? It depends on what the substance is. And so basically withdrawal looks like whatever the drug does, withdrawal is the opposite of that. So if a drug is what we call a downer, the withdrawal is going to be some something that looks very, very stimulated. So in babies with opioid withdrawal, they're going to have increased fussiness, this kind of high-pitched cry. They may have diarrhea. They may have a little bit of tremors um, and things that all look the opposite of use. Hmm. It can be complicated too by other substances. You can have polysubstance use in um, in a pregnant patient and you can have withdrawals in, in um, babies for sure that can kind of complicate and be multi-polysubstance use. So the Arizona Department of Child Safety is no longer going to investigate mothers of infants that test positive for cannabis, right? What do you make of a decision like that? Do you think like there should be a punitive side to this? It's so difficult, honestly, when it comes to substance use in pregnancy and kind of in general, how we treat substance use is very punitive just across the board, whether Mm -hmm. it's pregnancy, whether it's someone that isn't pregnant, the way we do treat substance use disorder is very punitive. And so I, you know, I always tell my patients, especially when they come in that, hey, per our policy, this has to be, you know, reported once baby is born. But as long as we have recovery and treatment options and there's low risk to baby, let's hopefully just make sure that this is a nuisance and not something something that we have to worry about. And it's, it's difficult when we start to pick and choose which substances we decide to mm. investigate and which ones we don't. I will say that hospitals in general do a really poor job of screening for substance use disorder. Mm. A lot of times it's up to the staff to kind of say, okay, I'm concerned. Let me do a urine drug screen. And that can cause a lot of ethical dilemmas where we're over screening our lower socioeconomic status patients, Mm. which we see all the time. And so I think it becomes really tricky when we start to pick and choose which substances we're we're going to investigate. And that's how I kind of feel with cannabis use as well. We do know that there is some harm harm to baby that can happen. Does that mean that that child should be taken away from their parents? No, it's just another opportunity to engage someone in recovery or healthier use and what that looks like. All right. We'll leave it there for now. That is Dr. Krista Labruzzo, a doctor specializing in addiction medicine at Banner Health, joining us to talk more about this. Dr. Labruzzo, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate you taking the time. Of course. Thanks for having me. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, if cursive is obsolete, why is California now requiring it be taught in public schools? But first, Arizona continues to deal with a shortage of teachers and the problem of keeping the teachers it does have in the classroom. 
A survey this past fall from the Arizona School Personnel Administrators Association found nearly 30 percent of the teaching vacancies across the state were still unfilled, while more than half of the vacancies were filled by teachers who don't meet the state's standard certification requirements. But as of this school year, there's a new effort to help train new teachers and get them in the pipeline. And it's coming from a novel source, high school. Phoenix Educator Preparatory is part of the Phoenix Union High School District. This is the first year it's been open, although it's been in the works for a couple of years. Elena Adams is the school's inaugural principal. She's also an alum of the district. I spoke with her earlier and asked about the goals of Phoenix Educator Preparatory. Mark, they are both big and small and everything in between. Uh, we, we have a national educator crisis in our nation, right? And Arizona is not immune to that. And so the obvious reason that our school exists is to grow, to not only recruit and retain uh, future educators for our world. It is a need in the United States of America. And how do you go about doing that? I mean, typically when we think about training teachers, we think about it on the college or university level or even the grad school level, but not as much the high school level. Exactly. And so in the Phoenix Junior High School District, our brand promise is to welcome, love, and inspire all students to go places and do things that matter. And we have seen that our youth have the ability to go places and do things that matter before they graduate in 12th grade. And we have been planning with our P20 partners, that's the Arizona Department of Education, that's our community college network, higher education, other fields like healthcare, Chicanos por la Casa, Banner Health, and they believe similarly. Um, And so we're all in it together to create a system in which our youth can safely begin to demonstrate via apprenticeship Um, those transferable skills that we know educators have. And we're defining educators um, as teachers, counselors, social workers, and psychologists for our pathways of study. And we know that, that those jobs happen in school buildings, and they also happen in our world. So can you sort of walk us through the, the how the curriculum works? Because we're talking about, in general, 14 to 18-year-olds, and you're talking about, you know, getting them involved in the teaching profession. So how do you take somebody at that age who may or may not know what they want to do for, you know, for a career uh, going forward and get them interested in and get them prepared for uh, being in the classroom, being a counselor or any of the other uh, educator jobs you mentioned? Yes, it has to be done very mindfully, and it obviously has to be developmentally appropriate, which is why we have so many partners that are joining us. And we are using a communities of practice structure. And what that means, it's very popular in other international systems. I think Canada, maybe Finland is using pieces of it, where you have dedicated spaces on your campus where community members can come and be and and have drop down spaces to work similar to a college campus. And then you curate ways for our youth to engage with the just right members of our community to help mentor and guide them and get those transferable skills from the classroom into our communities and back and forth. And as they become upperclassmen, they will go out into those communities and do mini student teaching or mini observations or maybe digestible wellness ambassador activities, things that are developmentally appropriate under the guidance of the experts in our classrooms in the Valley and in our communities that have those skills. 
what kind of interest have you seen so far? Understanding you're just in your first year here, but like how many students do you have? What kind of interest maybe do you have for future years? Yes. So our students, we're using also an academy's style uh, of a career academies model. And, and what that enables our students to do is to come in uh, their freshman year and just be freshmen just understand what it is to be in high school and to learn from the upperclassmen and hear from those community members. And then at the end of the freshman year, there is a pledging ceremony and they will pledge a pathway of study. And it is from that 10th through 12th grade year that they now get the required curriculum from our Department of Education and dual enrollment credit through our first dual enrollment partner, which is Phoenix College. So our students can quite literally graduate with a high school diploma and an associate or as close to it as possible uh, when they leave our system, which jumpstarts their future at whatever university they choose to go to. And we are hoping that they will double major and we are going to start guiding them at the 10th grade level to research other uh, careers that they're interested in so that they know when they leave us what their side bachelors is going to be. And if they choose to put their education bachelors to work, they finish up whatever classes they might need um, for that bachelors. It will give them more time to focus on the second bachelor's degree. And if they choose to come back and serve in our schools through our, our P20 partner network, as we're building that over the next two years to mobilize them, then they will get priority hiring within our system for sure and within our partner system as we set those systems up. But if they don't choose to become an educator, we know that they will still be educating our world in different buildings in different ways, because we know that the art of education is about teaching, leading, and caring in our world. Well, I was going to ask you about that, whether, you know, since you're getting students at a younger age than is traditionally what we talk about uh, for training teachers, I I was going to ask if you were concerned that, you know, as your students progress through high school and then for college, if they would decide that, you know, maybe classroom teaching, maybe being a counselor isn't really for them. They wanted to do something else altogether. It sounds like, yes, that is the thing that could happen, but it does not sound like it's a terribly big concern for you. Exactly. Because if you're supporting your local communities, um, you could be teaching in a Fortune 500 company. You could be teaching in the governor's office. And so we believe and we've seen during COVID that education and educating our world can happen inside and outside of school buildings. And that might mean that our youth chooses to do that education work in a non-school building. and, And that's okay. Well, so given that, how big of a dent do you think that this school, that your program can put into the teacher recruitment and and retention issue that this state and others have had over the last number of years? Yes, it is a it is a really big need in our world and, and especially in Arizona. And so we aim to fill every vacancy and hole. Uh, that's always the big dream. And realistically, we're gonna focus on our local communities and the partners that come forward to help in manageable local ways. And we are prepared to partner nationally and internationally as well to give our students additional options. As we're getting to know our first group of students and as those ninth graders become 10th graders, we will add 100 new students every year. We're literally listening to 
our students and we are building the pipelines and the opportunities based on their interests. All right. That is Elena Adams, principal of Phoenix Educator Preparatory in the Phoenix Union High School District. Elena, nice to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. The Phoenix Symphony is in the middle of its season with performances of Broadway show tunes, the music of Queen, a fusion of classical and rap, and pieces by composers including Mozart, Mahler, Rachmaninoff, and Beethoven still to come. But when the current season ends this spring, it'll also mark the end of the tenure of the symphony's conductor and music director. Tito Munoz will be leaving the Phoenix Symphony after 10 years. He came by the studio recently to talk about his time leading the orchestra, and we started our conversation with what comes to mind for him when he looks back at his time at the helm. It was my first American job, my first American music director job. I had a a music director job in France before I was here. Um, And um, it is very different. It's very different uh, in in the United States than in Europe. Um, There are a lot of... um, you know, there's the the financial structure of orchestras or of performing arts in general here, which is not for profit. Um, it's all you know private financing, whereas in Europe, it's a lot of public. It's mostly public, mm-hmm. um, and um, and so that actually you know cr- creates different priorities sometimes. You know, for the job and for the leadership positions, both myself and the administrative leadership, the CEO or the executive director, however they're called. And so it's a it's a it's a pretty uh, interesting position to be in. I mean, for for me in Phoenix, it was a it was a big learning curve in the in the beginning, um, to sort of figure out what the priorities needed to be, um, to see where the orchestra was at musically, and that's always a a, a challenge with an orchestra, especially in America, uh, because orchestras are, do so many things, um, and so that actually in in some ways is is really interesting for the orchestra because it keeps things kind of different and fresh and the variety, but it can be very very difficult to really create a trajectory. And so that was something that I had to figure out in the beginning was how was I going to you know achieve some of the goals that I had for the orchestra artistically within the framework of the system that we have. So that was sort of uh, one thing. Um, but but given that, um, it's been wonderful to you know work with. Um, such talented artists. I mean, the orchestra itself is very talented. I've been able to bring in a lot of really wonderful uh, guest artists to work with the orchestra. We've done some great, great music, some a lot of new music, which is a big passion of mine is doing contemporary music, uh, contemporary classical music, I should say, you know, new, new works. And maybe the, the biggest thing for me is we started a couple of years ago, right after COVID, uh, we started a contemporary music sort of week, a festival. We call it a festival, but it's really just a week. It's two programs, but it, it allows me to bring in a somebody in in that field of contemporary classical music, somebody who's doing really big, great things, and to curate their own week, basically, with the orchestra, with me. That's been very cool, because that's something that the orchestra really never has done before, really a, a very kind of intensive week of contemporary music. Yeah. Well, so I'm curious, you mentioned the the financial aspect of it and trying to bring in new works. I would imagine there's a balance there, right? Because if you're going to play sort of the the greatest hits, like people know those, they're probably likely to come hear them. But you probably have to balance that both for interest's sake and for sort of advancing the genre's sake, right? To bring in new artists, maybe exactly. works that people have never heard of before or brand new. How right. do you try to make that make that balance? It's a it's 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 ne- it's a never ending uh, uh, jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> unfortunately, it's yeah. it's 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 just you know, there's never a, a good answer. Um, every year is different. 
you know, coming out of COVID, everything was different as we all were, ex- were experiencing, you know, people's behavior as far as concert going and just going out uh, changed. Their priorities changed. And so our priorities sort of had to change. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a lot of experimenting, a lot of just seeing what works and what doesn't. And that's the thing about orchestras is that, and about any performing arts, that some things work in the city, in that particular city that maybe won't work in other places and vice versa. Um, and so um, in Phoenix, it's been really, really interesting to to try to crack that nut, uh, no pun intended, um, uh, to, to see how that works. Because like like the Nutcracker, which is a cash cow for an organization like like the like a ballet company, um, we you know we have certain works that we know will usually draw a big crowd sure. and usually can be that thing. But you know, but again, you know, we we could easily go down that route and just do the money making things, right? And that's something that. And then then if if we decide that that's going to be our priority, then we're no different than putting on a Vegas show that's literally just for profit you know, then, then it's not helping anything. And that's why it's really, really important that we, we spread the word to the public that having an orchestra is culturally relevant. It's culturally important. It's also just financially important for a city. You know, it's a lot of, it's a driver of the economy. Um, so to get the, 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 the government and the, the, the political community involved, um, and yeah, and that balance, because I do want to have a group that, that feels like they're they're doing things that are advancing themselves that they're they're really you know and the other thing that is really really important for an orchestra I think and this is something that's just I think evolving um, all over the industry is the orchestra is realizing that they really need to stop playing the comparison game with each other mm. and they really need to focus on you know what works in whatever city they're in and that might mean that the the job description for a musician depending on the orchestra might be a little different. All right, so at the risk of playing the comparison game, I'm curious because you have been. Uh, a conductor and a music director in other places. You've been a guest conductor in lots of places. When you look at Phoenix as a classical music city, yep. how do we compare to other places that you've been? That's a great question. <laughs> I have to be careful how I answer this question. <laughs> um, it's a challenging place. I'll be very frank with you. It's a very challenging place. We are um, the fifth largest city in the country, but we nowhere near have the fifth largest support for arts in the country. I mean, if you, if you compare cities like Houston and Chicago, which are comparable in population, they have, you know, organizations that are multiple times the budgets than we have. Part of it's that we're a new city. We're a very new city. We're a little bit of a transient city, a lot of transplants, a lot of people who are, you know, snowbirds who come here who have maybe their their loyalties in other places and don't see Phoenix as kind of Phoenix Symphony or the Arizona Ballet Arizona or whatever as their kind of primary. It's not their home. It's not their home home yeah. necessarily. I get that. I mean, and and there are other cities that have similar, like Miami, for example, has a sort of a similar um, issue that that's sort sort of similar issue. So that's really challenging. Um, there are certain things that you know you you would. You know, certain artists that you could program in in some other cities that would that would definitely draw audiences. You know, would be a draw that here nobody really knows. You know, and and or that don't have quite the same draw. That being said, um, one thing that's been very very fun about the Phoenix audience is that we do get a lot of new people coming to our concerts. People who are you know looking for a date night or all sorts of things. You know, that don't know classical music very well, and so sometimes that's a great problem to have because then you have a blank canvas to kind of you know 
create a tradition with or you know there have been times when I've programmed new works on concerts that had a Beethoven fifth or a, or a Tchaikovsky's five or whatever um, and I would program new works bring a bring a composer in to talk about their piece and the audience loves it because it's something different something new mm-hmm. they have a composer right there talking about their work and all of a sudden there's like a, a new appreciation for the idea of what contemporary music is um, so it's been a kind of interesting thing for me to see because I, you know, certainly when I go to Europe, especially Germany, that's, it's a little bit more ingrained in the culture. So, you know, people know the, the rituals, they know sort of how the concert's supposed to go. They know the music very well. Um, and here maybe not quite as much. I mean, we have some diehards that really do come that know music, know classical music. They appreciate it very much. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a challenging place as I'm sure a lot of folks in, in, in our industry, in this community, in the arts have, have experienced. Munoz talked about the Phoenix Symphony audience being somewhat of a blank canvas on which to create new traditions. So I asked him if some of that plays into some of the new kinds of things he's trying to do, like performing film scores or the music of pop and rock bands or artists of other genres or Reverb, the annual contemporary music festival he mentioned, and whether that's a way to maybe catch Phoenix up to some extent or build up the audience to get it to a place where the audience base and donor base are expanded. You would hope so, and you would think, but actually, we we, we actually know that that's not the case. We actually know really? that that doesn't work. Um, um, there, there's been studies that have been done in our industry, we and we know very well that sort of. I think pops when pops was first created as like a light classics. I think the intention was to to expand the audience and use that as kind of a gateway to or a bridge to have people connect with the with the organization and then come to other concerts. But um, we we've kind of learned that 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 just the pops thing kind of created its own animal. And so now we have pops as a separate genre. Now orchestras like ours do 50-50 because that's just what it is. And so generally speaking, there's not a lot of crossover. People who come to see Harry Potter will come to see Harry Potter, and that's kind of what they'll come to see. And they won't necessarily come for a regular classic class, classical show. Well, it's interesting when you talk about contemporary music and you believing that there's an uh, an audience for that here. Do you think that part of that is because, as you said earlier, like a lot of people who live here, maybe it's kind of more of a blank canvas in terms of classical music. So maybe people don't go in thinking, oh, I've got to hear Beethoven's Ninth. I've got to hear Rachmaninoff. I've got to hear the Nutcracker. Like this other thing that maybe I've never heard of before from a composer that I've never heard of before. This also is classical music. And like, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I think ultimately it's, it's for me, I I think it's about the experience itself and how that's marketed. The experience of the performance? The experience of the concert, the actual concert hall experience. I think that's what it is. I think everybody, you know, in, in this country kind of has a pretty good, even if they've never been to a concert of, of, of an orchestra concert, I think they all have a pretty good idea of how it goes. And that could be good or bad. I mean, depending on what people are looking for in a, sure. in a concert experience. If they're used to going to rock concerts, then no, a classical music concert is not going to be. <laughs> an attract- and nor, yeah, I get it. You know, it's fine. And um, you know, and 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 every kind of genre has their own traditions and their own way of presenting the music. Fair enough. Right. Um, I, I do think that that leaves us room to work on that and work on how we present it, work on how we market it. Um, as an example, you know, when you go to a museum. There are some people that go to an art museum once a year. Uh, there are some people that are regulars at art museums that just like to go because they appreciate it and they want to go see it and they want to go do it. Some people go specifically for an exhibit, a specific exhibit that's happening and they want to go see it, whether it's like a fashion exhibit or like, you know, artifacts of the Third Reich, which is going to be very, very, very you know, dismal and, and whatever. But if you're going to something like that, you know what you're getting yourself into. We don't really do that with classical music concerts. We People say, oh, I'm going to the symphony. But 
if we're doing Beethoven's Ninth, it's very different than doing like Shostakovich's Baba Yar Symphony, which is yeah. about the Ukrainian massacre at Baba Yar. I mean, like, and we kind of treat it all the same. We kind of present it all the same. We kind of like, and they're so different. And and I, I remember doing a concert with Corigliano's first symphony, John Corigliano, his symphony number one, which was sort of dubbed the AIDS symphony. He wrote it in the 80s. And it was his response to the AIDS pandemic. All of his friends were dying of AIDS. And... I don't think anybody came to that concert in the, in the audience knowing what that symphony was about. I'm sure they didn't. Um, and, and, you know, I made a point to talk about it at the beginning and explain and what aspects of the work were kind of um, reminiscent of his friends and what to listen for and what each movement and what each thing happened. It's a, it's a really incredible piece because it's a, it's a very, it's very spiritual and it's very ghostly and, um, and it's very powerful. Um, and you know, and, and the mail that I received afterwards was so like, uh, polarizing, you know, there were some people that were like, my God, finally Phoenix is not the, 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 the wild West town that I thought it once was. It's, you know, that people like me can feel like they're accepted and and we're presenting something like that, which really deals with things that we've experienced that are very relevant to our times. And, you know, there was some of the, you know, uh, uh, veiled homophobic, uh, responses that I've got as well, you know, very, you know, sort of conservative minded people that don't like dissonant music, but also that don't like, you know, a, a political, quote unquote, political agenda mm-hmm. in the music, even though it's, I, I don't think it is, but are okay with something like uh, Beethoven's Eroka, where he talks about Napoleon. And it's, a whole, I, mean, I mean, almost everywhere in classical music, there's all of these experiences. So that being said, I think, you know, it's about the experience of the, of the actual concert hall performance and doing these reverb concerts, which are a little bit more maybe interactive, a little bit more intimate. Uh, they're in other d- different kinds of venues. The pieces themselves sometimes are, are are a little bit more intimate and interactive, but I also think um, reminding folks about the relevance of of the music to the time. And so, you know, when you're doing even an old work, the old work can still actually speak to what you're what you're experiencing nowadays, just like a new work is doing the same. Right. Yeah. So, when you think back about your time as music director and and conductor of the Phoenix Symphony, what are you most proud of? Um. Well, a few things. Um, I think the orchestra, and, and I, I'm always a little bit wary to say this, but I, I think I do think that the orchestra is at a much higher artistic level than it was when I started. Um, I think the orchestra is able to do things that it wasn't able to do when I started. It sounds better than when I started. Um, and that, I think, has to do with a few things. One is... Um, you know, the willingness of the players to go with me, to go with where I wanted to take them. I think there was an evolution of personnel, you know, people retired, people left and, and, you know, that's just how it is sometimes. It's, it's, uh, the, you know, when you get fresh new, new, new folks and, and generally speaking, you know, the, the, each generation gets better and better and better. That's just how, it, how things go. And so we have a, a lot of new faces, especially after COVID, a lot of new faces in the orchestra that have really elevated the level. Um, I think the the types of programming have helped um, so that we're, we're, we're you know, because it's, it's very easy to, to, especially in the pops genre, it's very, it's very hard sometimes to know which pop shows that we hire are going to have like good charts, are going to have good music, you know, and, and, and sometimes, you know, you can be a backup band for a Beatles cover band and the, and the actual charts for the orchestra are really not very boring or that sort of thing. And so we, we've made it a point to try to make sure that we're, we're booking acts that have good you know, solid music for the orchestra to play so that they're not just kind of wasting a week uh, artistically. Um, I'm very proud of uh, all of the new music that I've been able to do and all the composers that I've been able to introduce to the Phoenix audiences. 
And and with all of that in mind, all of these guest artists, whether it's soloists, like the great soloists, I mean, we had we had Gil Shaham last year, we had you know Sarah Chang and Midori and all these people, uh, and some people who've come back a second time have all said, you know, have all said that they, they, they can hear a difference. You know, every time they come back, they can hear that the orchestra is improving, getting better and better and better. And same with the composer. So that's been really great. And then, of course, Reverb. I think Reverb is, is sort of came out of COVID, but I think ended up being something that I think will continue um, with the orchestra. It seems like that's, a, that's something the orchestra wants to keep in their programming. All right, we'll have to leave it there. That is Tito Munoz, the conductor and Virginia G. Piper, music director of the Phoenix Symphony. He'll be departing at the end of the season coming up this spring. Tito, thank you so much for coming in. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. Writing in cursive is pretty much a lost art these days. Since teaching it was dropped from the Common Core curriculum more than a decade ago, most kids haven't been taught how to write in those curving, connected letters. And as more of us pretty much exclusively write on computers and phones these days, there doesn't seem to be all that much use for it. But none of that stopped the California State Assembly from passing a new law unanimously to require the teaching of cursive in public schools. In fact, the L.A. Times reports lawmakers in nearly a dozen other states have passed similar laws mandating cursive. There are arguments about its importance to intellectual development and kids being able to read historic documents and such. But our next guest says it is largely about nostalgia. Steve Graham studies how writing develops and how we teach it. He's a Regents professor at the Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at ASU. And he told me he's more concerned with learning how to write well than learning how to have good handwriting. Here's our conversation, beginning with how cursive became obsolete. So there's really two things. One of them involves Common Core. When Common Core came out um, and you took a look at handwriting, they mentioned only teaching handwriting in kindergarten and first grade. And traditionally in the U.S., that's when we teach print or what some people call manuscript. And what happened is it got interpreted that since teachers were being asked to teach uh, handwriting in uh, second grade, third grade, and fourth grade, where we typically teach cursive writing. Yeah. Um, People interpret it as we don't need to teach this and it's dropped out of the curriculum. Hmm. The other issue or the second issue is that word processing has, you know, come to take up more and more of the kind of writing space when you compose. And so as a result, both at home and at school, handwriting's become less important. Yeah. I mean, we type now and we teach typing now, right? Yes, we do. Although not all schools do that. And there's some confusion about you know, what grade to start in. Hmm. But many schools start in second grade now. Okay. So did that sort of replace the when you would have learned cursive back in the day? It, you could look at it that way. Mm-hmm. But I think probably a different way of looking at it is that we teach one form of script, print, and we traditionally taught a second form of print, uh, which would be, you know, cursive. And with Common Core, one dropped out, you know, in a sense, the two are redundant. They both do the same thing for you. They get words onto paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do you think we're seeing right now in terms of what's happened in California and like a dozen states all around the country in terms of putting cursive back in the curriculum by law and and in a bipartisan fashion? Like, do you think there's a, a turnabout happening here? Well, I, I personally think it's a little crazy that you have legislators, you know, basically legislating 
what happens in terms of the P's and Q's, so to speak, mm -hmm. in the classroom. And they're, you know, insisting that teachers through sixth grade teach a skill that is now less important and less commonly used. However, there does seem to be this nostalgia for cursive handwriting. Hmm. So is it just nostalgia, you think? Like, there are some arguments out there about sort of the the value of teaching cursive, right, in terms of learning handwriting and, and intellectual development, right? Well, so if you look at the evidence, I think the best way to think about the effects of handwriting, whether it be print or cursive, is that it has an effect on the reader. If you're reading text and print or cursive is not legible, then readers form negative ideas or propositions about what you've written. And if you can't produce either in print or cursive text quickly, then, you know, it affects the writer, you know. So all of us have had the situation where our mind is faster than our hand and we lose an idea. Hmm. This idea about intellectual growth, there's really no support for that. You know, teaching handwriting doesn't make you a smarter person. Hmm. So do you think that that there is nothing really lost here in terms of, of cursive going by the wayside? Well, I think it, I'm going to again say there's maybe a different way of looking at this. Sure. And that is we don't have to teach print. We could teach cursive. Sure. Uh, cursive handwriting today is pretty straightforward and simple. And some countries don't teach print. They teach cursive. Hmm. Um, the issue really is do we need to teach both of them in a very crowded curriculum. And curriculums are getting more crowded, right? What about this idea that there is a generation of students or maybe more who, you know, won't be able to read historical documents or, you know, their grandmother's recipe cards or what's written on the back of an old family picture, that kind of thing? So that's often brought up, right? Yeah. And so I would ask you, when was the last time that you went back and read a historical document that was written by the founding fathers? And you know, we can get it in print now. Uh, and it doesn't mean because you don't learn cursive that you can't read cursive script. It's not an either or thing. It's more difficult to read. And quite honestly, grandmother is digital now. They use digital <laughs> devices. So, you know, that argument, um, while is great for nostalgia, I don't know it, that it holds much water. Okay. Okay. So cursive in particular, handwriting in general is less relevant, it sounds like, in your view today. But do you think sort of this is the death of handwriting? Like, should we not really learn this anymore? No, that's not what I'm saying. Um, I've been asked this question for 40 years about <laughs> um, the death of handwriting. And I sometimes snarkily say, can you tell me where it's buried? <laughs> you know, the, the, the reality of the situation is, is that much of the writing that occurs at school is by hand with mm -hmm. paper, pencil, and pen. And as long as that's the case, handwriting is going to be important. Even when that is not the case, assuming that that happens, you know, it's easy to carry paper, pen, and pencil in your back pocket, and it's very cheap. Mm -hmm. I don't see this tool going away completely. Do you ever, I wonder, talk to young people about this? Like in your work as a professor, right? Like what do they think about it? Do you know young people who never learned cursive and kind of feel like they missed out? Um, most of the students that I've worked with over the last 10 or 12 years, when this has become an issue, they don't really think about it that mm. much. You know, basically, in contrast to myself, where I print things out, I might write my notes out, and, uh, you know, by hand. They don't do that anymore. They, you know, they annotate directly on digital documents. 
they deal and operate in a much more digital world. And so I think regardless of what I think or legislators think, these skills are going to become less and less important in the future. All right. We'll leave it there. Steve Graham, Regents Professor at the Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College here at Arizona State University. He studies how writing develops and how we can teach it well. Steve, thank you so much for coming on the show and and giving us your take here. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for asking me to do this. And that'll do it for this Thursday edition of the show. Thank you, as always, for listening. For Lauren Gilger, I'm Mark Brody. Have a great rest of your day. Hope to have you right back here tomorrow. That's it for this episode of the show's podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, you can visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Lauren Gilger for Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.